What is the role of government? Is it something like to promote human flourishing and stop people from preventing others from flourishing? As I understand, even small government libertarians support government protecting life, liberty, and property. In Milton Friedman's words, quote, the proper role of government is to prevent other people from harming an individual, end quote. Even small government conservatives, as I understand, support promoting entrepreneurship in a free market. In Ronald Reagan's words, quote, government exists to protect us from each other, end quote. And another quote, government's first duty is to protect the people, not run their lives, end quote. Liberals, as I understand, want to help those society doesn't and to promote fairness. All these groups value free speech, freedom of the press, jury trials, and other rights the Constitution guarantees, as well as laws and judicial interpretations on where free speech encroaches on other freedoms, as in libel, or safety of life, as in yelling fire in a crowded theater. The 13th Amendment that bans slavery satisfies all these groups' interests today, liberal, conservative, libertarian. As far as I know, no political organization wants it appealed. It protects life, liberty, and property. It promotes entrepreneurship and a freer market than slavery did. That is, even businesses and industries that profited from slavery, they took hits after the 13th Amendment's passage. But I think everyone agrees that markets without slavery outperform markets with slavery, particularly considering the slave situation. The 13th Amendment also helped those society didn't and promotes fairness. I'm going to suggest something that you'll think sounds crazy. Your mind will fill with objections. It will sound so impossible as to not be worth wasting breath on. It did with me at first, but one by one, you'll see those objections fade. You'll realize what I'm proposing is hard, extremely hard, as hard as passing the 13th Amendment, but just as appropriate. You'll see why alternatives to achieve what it achieves have failed in this area, and those things will continue to fail as surely as they failed to end slavery. I propose a constitutional amendment banning pollution. My point is not to compare pollution to slavery, but to see the level of the problem and therefore the level of the solution and why lower level laws, judicial interpretations, and executive orders will fail. Also, to help give you the clarity with which future generations will see our pollution, as many already do today, they will look back in horror at how long we continued hurting each other for profit, comfort, convenience, and ignorance, generally willful, as we look back in horror at how long they took to end slavery. Yes, it sounds as crazy as banning slavery would have in 1860. Slavery had existed in nearly every culture since before history. It was good for business, and many voters considered it morally good. Few could have imagined a world without slavery. Many believed our survival as a nation depended on it. Let's recall some history for context of an amendment people didn't think would pass. Even Abraham Lincoln didn't conceive of an amendment banning slavery long before the Civil War. The first time he proposed an amendment, in 1862, he proposed giving states until 1900 to end slavery. The 13th Amendment barely passed, but who would vote to repeal it today? If you know anyone who would, I'm very curious. Please introduce us. I can't imagine their reasons. I can't think of anyone I know who would vote to repeal the 13th Amendment today. Looking back, we see only a constitutional amendment could have ended slavery. Today we see slavery as the clearest case of morally wrong behavior, but it was not clear at the time. Many voters benefited from slavery. Even most people who wanted to change it felt powerless, figuring what they did didn't matter, that only government could make a difference. Even though England had banned the slave trade in 1807 and slavery in its empire in 1833, I doubt many people could have imagined a world without slavery since many industries and livelihoods depended on it. In that America, even for something most people today would call evil, federal, state, and local law, judicial interpretation, and executive orders were all doomed to fail to achieve what the 13th Amendment did. 
people would work around them, and they did, finding ways to admit new states to slave states, increasing slavery. In the Dred Scott decision, the Supreme Court ruled African Americans weren't citizens, which many called the Supreme Court's worst decision, but it passed 7-2 to two and was hardly unique. Even the Emancipation Proclamation was on shaky grounds. Lincoln knew that a president had the power in war to seize property from foreign nations. But if people couldn't be property, as he held, and the rebels weren't a foreign nation, as he held, did it have any legal basis? What would happen after the war ended? What if a later president reversed it? Executive orders just don't work here. And Lincoln was accused of tyranny. And what else do you call trying to create the law of the nation by executive fiat? The Constitution is the appropriate place to clarify what constitutes America. That's why it includes free speech, freedom of assembly, the right to a jury trial, the right for women to vote, freedom of the press, and so on. Can you imagine trying to implement free speech or freedom of the press without them being in the Constitution, merely through federal, state, and local laws, or hoping that judges would interpret the Constitution without them or other laws, how the amendments actually implementing them have worked? I don't see it happening. For more context, besides history, I have a math background, so I think of Euclid. From five axioms, he derived all of Euclidean geometry, but he couldn't derive those five axioms. He needed to start from them. They constitute Euclidean geometry. Likewise, based on your values, you can determine your behavior, but logic can't tell you your values. You have to start with them. That's what the Constitution is for, to state what our values are. On to the objections. I'll start with a baker's dozen of the ones that I've heard most. I'm sure I'll miss some you think of, so please let me know others. The first, number one, prohibition failed. Well, alcohol, like slavery, predates civilization. It helped form civilization a good 10,000 years ago. But pollution like today's has been around something like 200 years, nothing like 10,000, most of it within our lifetimes. That we think that we can't live without it is a sign of dependence, addiction, ignorance of history, and lack of imagination. Prohibition was designed to save people from themselves more than harming others. But pollution's problem is harming others. That's what government is for. Two, people will circumvent it like they did prohibition. Well, first, the main sources of pollution are fossil fuels and nuclear. Once you could find coal and oil on the surface of the earth, it was there. But now we have to dig under miles of rock, often under miles of ocean. You can't hide the Deepwater Horizon, Exxon Valdez, or pipeline like you could a bathroom still. So it's much harder to circumvent. Besides, if people developed backyard ways of creating energy, that's what we want. In World War II, Victory Gardens produced 44% of American vegetables overnight. That's solar power, reducing pollution, educating kids, saving power, saving money. And again, they did that overnight. Speaking of initiatives and entrepreneurship, you may know that I lowered my ecological footprint over 90% in under three years, improving my life. Well, corporations in the private sector can do what I did once they can no longer legally profit from hurting other people from polluting. An anecdote will reveal how the Constitution's silence currently stifles entrepreneurship. A reporter who wrote an article profiling me came back afterward and said she wanted to pollute less too, but she couldn't figure out what to do about the disposable Keurig capsule. She had a Keurig machine to make coffee, and they had these little capsules that people throw away, and she couldn't figure out what to do. Could I help her with those? I said, I don't drink coffee, so I haven't tried to solve that problem, but I can tell you the process for you to solve it yourself. Don't use it for a while. You won't die. And then one of two things will happen. You may stop drinking coffee. If so, problem solved. If not, you'll see that people drank coffee without Keurig machines for centuries, and you'll find a solution. Maybe it'll involve a French press. She said, oh yeah, a friend gave me a French press. It's in my cupboard. 
I guess I can use it. The moral of the story is how not to stop polluting, keep polluting. How to stop polluting, stop polluting. No one will die. When we face the problems that actually come up, we'll solve them. By contrast, the worst way to learn if we can fly planes across oceans without polluting is to keep flying planes with jet fuel. It stifles entrepreneurship to keep doing what we've been doing. Number three, it's bad for business. On the contrary, entrepreneurship will flourish. The 13th Amendment was bad for the overseer industry. The iron chain and shackling business actually opposed ending slavery since it made money from it. We want businesses that profit from hurting others to close. But notice that rum, molasses, cotton, and things we value still exist. An amendment banning pollution will lead entrepreneurship to flourish because when government doesn't clearly state values, people pursue scams. Sustainability has seen scam after scam. Nearly all recycling, green growth, hydrogen economy, carbon offsets, net zero, carbon capture and sequestration, These are idea after idea that sound good on paper, but just extend polluting. Again, Milton Friedman described this role, quote, the existence of a free market does not, of course, eliminate the need for government. On the contrary, he continues, government is essential, both as a forum for determining the rule of the game and as an umpire to interpret it and enforce the rules decided on, end quote. Even Ronald Reagan understood. He said, quote, I'm proud of having been one of the first to recognize that states and the federal government have a duty to protect our natural resources from the damaging effects of pollution that can accompany industrial development, end quote. You'll notice that I'm quoting Reagan, Friedman, libertarians, and conservatives preferentially. I don't mean to take for granted that liberals would support this amendment automatically, but I think today's climate leads people to associate sustainability with big government, whereas this amendment is the opposite. So I want to highlight that contrast. Not that I necessarily agree or disagree with those views, but I want to make sure that they're there. Objection number four, pollution is a part of life. I exhale carbon dioxide. I poop. Anyone can tell the difference between things that life did before humans existed and the great Pacific garbage patch and forever chemicals causing birth defects and cancer. It's easy to tell these things apart. Furthermore, cultures that didn't pollute produced Buddha, Jesus, Lao Tzu, Aristotle, Confucius. I think we could use more of them. Non-polluting cultures like the San have survived over 200,000 years. We don't need pollution for health, longevity, a good life, or a strong economy. Cities existed with over a million people thousands of years ago for longer than since the Industrial Revolution to now. They could get food in and waste out. We don't. Our waste accumulates. Again, most pollution came in our lifetimes. We don't need it. It's lowering our health, longevity, and sperm counts, raising cancer, raising birth defects, and more damage. Objection five, pollution is hard to define. Well, slavery and indentured servitude were hard to define too. There are countless many wage slavery practices American corporations practice today that would qualify, and there certainly have been in the past, but we're glad the amendment exists nonetheless. For this new amendment, we could go the direction of the 13th Amendment with very few words. It just said slavery and indentured servitude aren't allowed. We could also go the direction of the 14th, which is two pages long. That's up for debate, but I believe that we should still pass it. Now, I would welcome a conversation on how to define pollution. I have a couple starting points. Now, if you burn wood in a closed space, you could die from smoke inhalation. But if the smoke gets out and is ventilated, nature makes it safe again. It reconstitutes it. Wood comes from the biosphere. But fossil fuels, well, they were once on the surface, but today we get them from outside the biosphere and become poisonous when we use them. So defining one class of pollution is you can't bring stuff from outside the biosphere into it that becomes toxic with use. So that would knock out using fossil fuels. 
A second class of pollution I would define is that you can't make or release things that take longer than a certain amount of time for nature to process, maybe something like 50 years, or what research comes up with, maybe human lifetime, maybe something less. These definitions, of course, could use refining, but I think they're close. We might include noise pollution, but most of that comes from cars and devices powered by fossil fuels, so it would be knocked out anyway. Objection six, it will never pass. Well, maybe not today, but nearly everyone said so about the 13th Amendment as well. Besides, there are still good reasons to pursue it now, even if we're not confident it will pass soon. For one thing, there is value in envisioning the right solution and seeing why lower-level attempts fail, so we don't waste time on them. It meets the values of libertarians, that is, pollution destroys life, liberty, and property. It meets values of conservatives because it unleashes entrepreneurship and it will free markets by removing government from issuing extraction licenses. And it meets values of liberals because it helps the environment, it helps indigenous cultures, it helps the underserved. How many measures meet all three groups' interests? On top of those things, everyone would enjoy lower taxes, cleaner air, land and water, and food. Also, talking about it reveals how sensible it is. Just keep talking about it and see how it starts falling into place. Also, even if America's politicians don't pass it quickly, we American citizens can still lead other nations that might implement their versions first. Objection 7. What about longevity and health? Don't we need fossil fuels and nuclear to keep us from reverting to serfdom and the Stone Age? On the contrary, fossil fuels and other things that pollute didn't really help us that much in these areas. Soap and hygiene did much more than polluting energy sources. Besides, today pollution is shortening our lifetimes. Nine million people die annually from breathing polluted air. The Atlantic slave trade took centuries to reach that number, which is increasing. And it's only one measure and is small compared to predicted suffering. As for science, we will not sacrifice science. Einstein's miracle year of 1905 came without flying and before plastic. Another anecdote. Once I told my mom about a podcast episode with a guest who had just returned from winning a silver in the Paralympic Games in Tokyo. My mom still flies, so she thought she'd checkmate me, and she said, ah, but how did he get there, knowing that he flew there and back? I told her he didn't focus on sustainability yet, so that wasn't an issue for him. But the bigger point, the Olympics preceded flying. The Wright brothers first flew in 1903. By then, baseball, football, Basketball, they had existed for generations. Hockey and soccer had existed in some form for centuries. The Olympics date back thousands of years. Wrestling predates Homo sapiens. All mammals play. What I'm getting at is without pollution, sports and, and these things that we value, those existed forever. They won't go away. People would change from watching sports from the couch to participating. Likewise, with drama, singing, and all cultural activities, people will do more of these things. The emotions that you feel from watching the latest blockbuster movie, they didn't come with movies. Our ancestors felt emotions just as powerful from listening to the Iliad or from stories around the campfire. But those emotions that we get from blockbusters, just the latest one, we don't even feel them from a movie from five years ago because the special effects, they don't do it anymore. Many activities just simply don't require pollution, including everything for life and healthy cultures. They all existed before pollution. Objection eight. It makes government bigger. We'll need agencies to enforce it. Well, how many agencies do we have to police slavery or freedom of the press? Again, you can't easily hide oil refineries, plastic factories, pipelines, or other major sources of pollution. We can police those things pretty simply. But this view misses the huge role of government in licensing extraction rights. That is the right to produce pollution. Again, quoting Milton Friedman, quote, the combination of economic and political power in the same hands is a sure recipe for tyranny, end quote. Well, polluting industries have utterly co-opted government, 
fossil fuels most of all, though also industrial agriculture, cars, chemicals, airlines, and so on. This amendment would remove government from allowing extraction. There's no reason to consider digging under miles of rock, under miles of ocean, blasting mountaintops to smithereens, and creating molecules that never existed before that poison people. There's no reason to consider those things rights that corporations have, especially when most of it comes from public lands that even if we did allow them those rights, they conflict with life, liberty, and property. Pollution and big government go hand in hand. Limiting government ability to allow drilling public lands and releasing poisonous chemicals into the biosphere would reduce government, not increase it. Objection 9. But if we don't pollute, others will. That's what Everin predicted when England banned its slave trade in 1807, but other nations followed, including the United States eventually. When New York banned cigarettes in the workplace in 2003, bars and restaurants predicted its customers would simply cross the river to New Jersey to smoke. Instead, in 2006, New Jersey banned smoking because its customers were going to New York to breathe cleaner air. People simply didn't know what eating and drinking and cleaning air felt like. When they did, they went to it. When CVS Drugs rebranded to CVS Health, they considered stopping selling cigarettes, their top profit center. Everyone advised them not to. But they did, and within 12 months, their profits exceeded before. This pattern happens over and over again. When New York banned styrofoam, restaurants said they'd go out of business, but the industry didn't change. The statement that if we don't, others will, is the opposite of leadership. Leadership, to me, means something like living by your values and influencing others to follow. To say that if we don't, others will, and then to do it, is following others that we oppose to live by values we oppose. America could lead. Well, we are leading in polluting more. Others are saying about us that we will if they don't. So we are leading the world in hurting others. We don't have to do that. Objection 10. As abolition increased, fossil fuels were ramping up, so the average person could still expect his or her life to improve materially. But we today have no alternatives to what pollution provides for the average person to look forward to. Won't banning pollution make people's lives worse? So that's a big objection. Well, most of my life, I felt reducing pollution meant deprivation and sacrifice. And that's what I expected when I took on my first experiment in sustainability, which was trying to avoid packaged food for a week. I thought I was taking on deprivation and sacrifice. Instead, when I actually did it, I found it improved my life. Some of the benefits included saving time and money, more diverse food, connecting more with other cultures and cuisines, connecting with family, seeing how it helped make fresh food more accessible for people with less access. I could go on. That experience led me to start sustainability leadership, not just acting sustainably, but to lead others for two main reasons. The first was the personal experience, how the experiment shifted my mental mindset in a way I could not have imagined, then led me to a path of continual improvement. And that was a path of joy, fun, freedom, community, connection, meaning, and purpose. And it revealed the isolation, entitlement, anxiety, craving, and other problems of our current system. The other reason was abundant research that my experience was common. In head-to-head competition, for centuries, people who knew our culture and other cultures chose other cultures. I don't mean other cultures like Japan or France, which are basically today like ours, but traditional ones. Allow me to explain. David Graeber's and David Wengrow's book, The Dawn of Everything, described a situation in colonial North America that I didn't know about. They wrote, quote, The colonial history of North and South America is full of accounts of settlers captured or adopted by indigenous societies, be given the choice of where they wish to stay, and almost invariably choosing to stay with the latter. This even applied to abducted children. Confronted again with their biological parents, most would run back to their adoptive kin for protection. By contrast, 
Amerindians incorporated into American society by adoption or marriage, including those who enjoyed considerable wealth and schooling, almost invariably did just the opposite, end quote. This pattern happened all over the world and continues today. As I put it in a blog post, if we're so wealthy, why do we keep taking land and resources from poor places? Why do we dump so much garbage on them? If our material things are so valuable, why do we throw so much of it away in landfills and why are oceans full of them? Benjamin Franklin also commented on this one-way flow. So here's a long quote from Benjamin Franklin. When an Indian child has been brought up among us, taught our language, and habituated to our customs, yet if he goes to see his relations and makes one Indian ramble with them, there's no persuading him ever to return. But when white persons of either sex have been taken prisoners, young by the Indians, and lived a while among them, though ransomed by their friends, and treated with all imaginable tenderness to prevail with them to stay among the English, yet in a short time they become disgusted with our manner of life and the care and pains that are necessary to support it, and they take the first good opportunity of escaping again into the woods from whence there is no reclaiming them. End quote. Another person, French-American Hector de Crevecourt, wrote in 1782, a quote from him, Thousands of Europeans are Indians, and we have no examples of even one of those Aborigines having from choice become European. There must be in their social bond something singularly captivating and far superior to anything to be boasted of among us. End quote. History corroborates their observations. New York Times columnist David Brooks wrote in 2016, quote, During the wars with the Indians, many European settlers were taken prisoner and held within Indian tribes. After a while, they had plenty of chances to escape and return, and yet they did not. In fact, when they were, quote, rescued, they fled and hid from their rescuers. Sometimes the Indians tried to forcibly return the colonials in a prisoner swap, and still the colonials refused to go. In one case, the Shawanese Indians were compelled to tie up some European women in order to ship them back. After they were returned, the women escaped the colonial towns and ran back to the Indians, end quote. Sebastian Younger's book, Tribe, documents many modern cases where people found themselves living more basically and what meant mutual support, mutual dependence, and feeling needed, even if it also meant physical hardship, or maybe especially when it involved physical hardship. They preferred it to our society's isolation, despite our material plenty, science, and all the stuff that Steven Pinker's The Better Angel of Our Nature and Enlightenment Now, his books, they say that they make now the best time ever and getting yet better. But in the times that we couldn't live as we do in our modern world, such as after earthquakes and other natural disasters, or post 9-11 in New York City, during the London Blitz, after mine collapses, in case after case, mental health issues went down and people liked the changes. Veterans prefer war, including being shot at, to life back home. This is the core of what's motivating me, that despite the material plenty that pollution brings, in head-to-head competition we prefer life otherwise. Did you know spoiled, entitled kids when you were a kid? I did. Nobody liked that they were spoiled and entitled, but they didn't know that they were. If you asked them, they would say they didn't want their parents to say no to them at appropriate times, but everyone else knew that their lives would be better for it. We are so spoiled that we think only about ourselves when we want to fly, or when we order takeout so that we can binge watch Game of Thrones instead of cooking dinner, and then tell people we don't have time to cook and neglect to notice the plastic and exhaust that we paid for, and we buy stupid disposable stuff on Amazon that we don't need. People are free to do what they want, to throw their lives away. That's fine with me. The point of this amendment is to prevent them from hurting others. The side effect is for entitled people who don't believe until they experience it that they will like the change. Not only will they like it, they will rank it among their greatest life improvements. Now that's just a bonus, but the reason is to prevent harm to others. Now, there is the challenge of helping people see what they have to look forward to. That will help the amendment pass. 
People are addicted, and addicts see withdrawal symptoms more than the life improvements beyond it. That's why I'm not only pursuing this amendment. That's just one thing that I'm doing. I also lead in many other ways, mainly leading influential people at leverage points of systems to leverage community. But that's another issue. Going back to the amendment, if a genie offered me to magically pass the amendment, but without first gaining popular support, so an overwhelming majority of people wanted it, I would not accept that offer from the genie. I'm not starting with lobbying Congress. They're beholden to funds mostly coming from polluting sources. My strategy is first overwhelming public support. Objection 11. Human ingenuity requires fossil fuels. There's a community and literature, including books like The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, The Ultimate Resource, Atlas Shrugged, and blogs like The Master Resource that partly claim that human ingenuity is the greatest resource, suggesting that more people will create more solutions so we should increase the population and increase fossil fuel use. But they never quite believe themselves because they say that people need power to realize their ingenuity, and always from fossil fuels. If you really look at it, they don't believe in human ingenuity on its own. And they tend to call people who they see depriving people of access to that power, they call them Neo-Malthusian, referring to Thomas Malthus, who predicted that humans would outgrow our food supply, leading to famine and death. As best I can tell, their accusations are projections of their own views. They see nature as scarce, not abundant, and fear collapse without fossil fuels, which if you really look at it, their scarcity and fear of collapse without fossil fuels makes them the Neo-Malthusians. They see humans as dependent on fossil fuels, not ingenious on our own. By contrast, I'm not using Malthus's argument. He couldn't have foreseen pollution hurting people on today's scale. I'm talking about protecting individual freedom from harm. I see humans as inherently ingenious, not conditionally, and clarifying the rules of the market will unleash that ingenuity and creativity. For inspiration on our ingenuity decreasing pollution, I recommend the video series, Not Just Bikes, that shows really delightful ways how city design can improve life while decreasing car dependence. Or Low Tech Magazine, that documents how humans solve problems before fossil fuels, often more effectively. Its tagline is, we love technology. I do too, along with not hurting people. Objection 12. It's hard. Ultimately, as we see pollution is unnecessary and hurts people for private gain, Reason dispenses with all the objections that sound reasonable based on objective considerations. But there remains what people cling to most. But it's hard. I want to keep flying. Yes, it looks hard before trying. Getting clean from any addiction means temporary withdrawal. But life is better clean. America has chosen to do things because they are hard before and succeeded. We made slavery illegal. We mobilized overnight to defeat fascism in Europe and the Pacific. We put a man on the moon. Yes, after this amendment, we won't get takeout in plastic anymore, but you will find your life improve. We prefer our culture and economy without slavery, and we will find the same without pollution. Speaking for myself, I have a PhD in physics and an MBA. I've launched companies based on my inventions. I believed technology would solve our problems, but technology augments our values. If, by our fruits we know a tree, America today values pollution and deteriorating health and longevity. Without this amendment, Technology will continue accelerating this path toward deteriorating health and deteriorating longevity. With it, with this amendment, we won't solve all our problems, but we will solve our pollution ones. Objection 13. I want plastic. I want to fly. This is the addiction speaking. People got more of what we think flying, takeout, and so on bring us before those things. This pattern exists in all addictions. Gamblers think that they're winners when they're actually losing. Meth users feel like they have more energy when their bodies are deteriorating. 
Smokers feel cigarettes calm them, but they created the jitters in the first place. Alcoholics feel it makes them more friendly as they lose their friends. Pollution-powered activities like flying make us feel like we're seeing the world as we destroy it. Like we visit other cultures as we destroy them and learn less and less about them, let alone our own. One flight brings us to distant loved ones or closes a business deal, but flying in general leads us to live far from loved ones in the first place and forces us to compete globally all the time. Pollution only half solves the problems that it creates. These subjective objections boil down to, I want to and I can't imagine a good life or culture without them. But that's not an objection. It's actually more powerful than an objection. And my experience tells me it drives all the objections. It's a statement of lack of imagination and ignorance of history and anthropology. The dominant culture that is polluting the world today is only one. It just happens to have destroyed nearly all others. Those other cultures resist because they see their lives were better without all that extraction, isolation, lack of mutual dependence, lack of community, and so on, inherent to polluting activities. The more that I've learned, the more that I've learned why people in other cultures, not France or Japan, but Hadza, San, Native American, and other traditional societies, why they reject ours. One culture can dominate and even through genocide destroy another, while the people within the destroying one are less healthy, less happy, less stable, and not living as long. So that's the baker's dozen of objections. If you have others, please let me know. If I learn a deal breaker, I don't want to waste my time pursuing a counterproductive goal, but all the objections I've seen so far fade. Yes, it's hard, and hard to imagine life without pollution, but the 13th Amendment passed. We beat Hitler, and we reached the moon. We can do this. And I offer a counter-objection. Without a constitutional amendment banning pollution, how will we stop it? Technology designed to lower it keeps increasing it. Technology simply is not the answer alone. Technology without first changing our values and encoding them in the Constitution simply continues the pattern. That is, if we make a polluting system more efficient, we may lower pollution in one area, but we increase it overall. This happens over and over again. Uber was more efficient than personal cars and was predicted to lower miles driven and congestion, but it increased them. The Watt steam engine, going back to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, it was more efficient and was predicted to lower coal use, but it increased it because more people used more engines for more uses. Likewise, drones, like helicopter drones, are more efficient than helicopters, but there are so many, they collectively pollute more. What changes the system isn't making it more efficient. That keeps it going just faster. Changing its values does. If you want to make basketball players shorter, hiring a few shorter players won't help. Changing the rule book to lower the height of the rim will. Want to change our polluting system? Change the rule book so you can't hurt people through pollution. Here's a gut check. Ask yourself, what's the right amount of pollution per person? Cheap plastic has led to nearly every item sold in supermarkets being packaged. How long can we live when every single thing we eat, a necessity for life, pollutes and hurts people? When you think about it, I think you'll realize that with 8 billion people, if everyone pollutes forever, we will eventually drown in pollution. The right amount is zero. We must eventually reach that goal. With my PhD in physics, I believed in nuclear. For a long time, I would say, once we get fusion working, it will solve everything. But as I came to understand systems, I've come to see it would accelerate and expand our path unless we change our values first. I changed mine to stewardship and dropped my ecological footprint over 90%. To clarify, Living by my values is not to be confused with leading others. It's necessary but not sufficient because I don't believe that you can lead people to live by values that you live the opposite of. People call this reduction of mine extreme, 
But once I saw it as doing unto others as I would have them do unto me, how could I live any other way? People call me extreme, but I view not polluting as traditional, since most of our ancestors, in fact, nearly all of them, didn't pollute. Whereas America pollutes in the extreme from my perspective, or from any perspective outside our own addictions. Many people hear about a 90% drop, not by someone living off in the woods, but by a professional in Manhattan unwilling to sacrifice a certain level of lifestyle and think it is impossible. Responding with something like, oh, well, maybe you can, Josh, because, and then some reason. Or they'll say, I can't, because, and then they'll give some reason that makes them unable. I've simply shifted to a learner's mindset and started a path of continual improvement, same as many corporate leadership programs. If you thought such a reduction was impossible, let alone improving my life, that's part of why I did it. You can either disbelieve reality or change the beliefs that led you to expect it to be impossible. What else that you consider impossible is actually fun, free, and joyful. Maybe you changing? Maybe passing a constitutional amendment? What do you stand for? How much are you willing to participate in hurting others for a lifestyle that you can change? Where would you have stood in history when, say, people marched for civil rights in the U.S., against apartheid in South Africa, or for that matter, in the colonies in 1775? What happens to a culture that doesn't live by its values? It twists itself up, trying to rationalize what it considers wrong, yet still does. In the case of slavery or denying women the right to vote, it concocts bogus stories and scientific racism that people who are equal really aren't. Quoting Eric Williams, the historian and former prime minister of Trinidad and Tobago, quote, slavery was not born of racism. Rather, racism was the consequence of slavery, end quote. That is, people being unwilling or unable to let go of slavery led them to create stories that the people that they were hurting and killing weren't equal or whatever nonsense would help them sleep at night while patently violating the golden rule. We in America are following that path, concocting stories and bogus science justifying hurting others. Nobody loves their country more than I love mine, but on the environment, and by which I don't mean some abstraction, but how we humans affect other humans intermediated through the environment. As a culture, America has nearly abandoned do unto others what others would do unto you. That is the golden rule, which is as far as I know, a foundation of every culture we've ever found. And we've also abandoned leave it better than you found it, also known as stewardship. And what have we replaced these values with? Regarding the environment, America's culture, a land of cancer alley, sacrifice zones, declining sperm counts, rising cancer and birth defects, rivers catching on fire. American culture has become represented by capitulation, resignation, abdication, defeatism, giving up, claims of helplessness, anything but responsibility in favor of comfort, convenience, victimhood, and entitlement that leads to rising levels of anxiety, stress, isolation, PTSD, addiction, and suicide. Instead of leading the world to health, longevity, can-do optimism, and effective action, we are leading the world to disease and suffering. The world fears us. We have become the world's leader in not protecting life, liberty, and property, of unfree markets from government intervention and collusion in profiting and hurting people. This amendment would restore our leadership and culture of success. How do I propose making the amendment happen? Not by starting with Congress or the Senate. They're the finishing line of the marathon, not at start. Though I do expect many of them will see how appropriate the solution is, even if they don't consider it expedient to getting funds from their corporate backers. So they might not say it. My vision is to go to the public and help them see first the possibility and then desirability of living again by the golden rule and stewardship. That sustainability means not deprivation and sacrifice, as their addictions tell them, but joy, fun, and freedom. I want no part in sneaking legislation through like I know better than the public. 
I envision this amendment ratified by all 50 states backed by overwhelming public support. I expect that to support to come from thoughtful libertarians, conservatives, liberals, students, veterans, parents, but most of all, places covered with plastic, people in Cancer Alley, sacrifice zones, and the like. It will never go away as a proposal because too many people will see it's the right tool for the right job. You may as well get on board now. As a first step, I wrote an op-ed piece I hope to submit co-signed by libertarians, conservatives, and liberals, maybe someone from the military and evangelical communities. I don't expect to get party leaders from the start, but citizens who believe in the potential of the United States of America to lead like never before, to write history beyond perhaps any nation has done before. I propose you start thinking about a world where no one pollutes, where entrepreneurs thrive, creating a healthier world once government fulfills its top role to prevent people from harming others. People do not want to capitulate. They want a moonshot to mobilize as in World War II. You can't do it while addicted. You can't stop the global heroin trade if you're worried about your own supply. So I suggest we stop polluting now. Future generations will recoil in horror at our taking so long, but we can start acting today. Those who don't act to reduce your pollution, whatever else you do for your legacy, if humanity makes it through our environmental challenges, future generations will take your name off buildings. They will take your statue down. Like the 13th Amendment, this constitutional amendment is the right tool for the right job. Living by one's values always brings joy, the golden rule in stewardship in this case. I'm not saying it will solve all of our problems, but it will solve our pollution problems. Nothing else will.